It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hi, this is Jay Horowitz with the next latest edition of Mets Amazing Alumni Podcast with my old friend Gary Cohn. Okay, we've known each other now 31 years. I guess you're getting younger and I'm getting older. A long time that I work with you. It's my, my pleasure. Do you remember the first time we actually met? Um, spring training, 1989, 89, St. Lucie, you walk on the field, there's a fight going on during our team picture. Two of our players, Keith and Dow, got to a little disturbance and uh, all hell broke loose. Yeah, that was my introduction. <laughs> my yeah. first day yeah. in spring training was the day yeah. that, that all hell broke loose. And, um, yeah. you know, I got, to, I got to meet you at your best, Jay, because yeah. you um, – you know, you were you were all um, all in action. You were you were yeah. trying to put out the fire from every conceivable direction. And I got to see you at your best right from the opening moment of our relationship. Yeah. That was that was it. My T picture got more publicity than any P picture in my 40 plus years with the Mets. It was all over the country. I got congratulatory calls from uh, from everybody. Well, that that didn't last too long. Gary is a person who travels around a country line and always on a go. How has this quarantine been for you? Well, you know, during the off season, I, I do do college basketball, but it doesn't really involve a lot of travel. And I generally stay close to home. So it so far, at least, it has felt like a continuation of the off season, um, albeit with slightly longer days and somewhat warmer weather. Um, you know, my uh, the biggest issue isn't the, the not working. It's, you know, it's looking at what's going on in the world and how many people are suffering. And that's, uh, you know, it's just yeah, it's, it's, between it's the terrible. illness and the climate. Oh, there, there's so many people suffering and, and goodness knows we are not among them. So I consider yeah. us, uh, you know, and people like ourselves very fortunate that, um, you know, we have our health and, and we're able to sustain ourselves and just uh, hoping that, um, somehow we can get back to something approaching normal soon. You know, Gary, you and I have something else in common. I was looking through, preparing for the podcast. 1981, you get your degree in political science at Columbia. And one of your uh, soccer uh, broadcasting partners was George Stephanopoulos, the you know, Clinton press secretary. Did you have any hopes of going into politics or when you first, when you got out of Columbia? Well, I was a political science major mostly because I thought it was the easiest major. <laughs> I had yeah. I had very little interest in school. I was not a school guy at all. Um, I spent most of my time at the college radio station, and and um, really from from my, my sophomore year on, I, I had the idea that I wanted to go into the, the broadcasting business, and, and I was very much focused in that direction. Um, I had it in the back of my mind that if it didn't work out, you know, maybe I'd go to law school and see what happened from there. But um, really, for most of my college life, I was far more focused on broadcasting than I was on on school or, or, or any other post-school career. 
Have you stayed in contact with George at all through the years or we gone your separate ways? I have not. I have not. I really didn't know George all that well. He was a couple of years behind me. He was a very quiet, very serious guy. He was also on the right. wrestling team at Columbia. And, uh, you know, we intersected a little, did some soccer games together. But uh, I can't tell you that we were best friends or, or anything like that. But it's been yeah. it's been great watching him and, and his career. Gary, the Queens guy, how did it feel going in 89 when you go to work for the Mets, your childhood team? I mean, how did it be a special thrill to go to a team that you rooted for growing up? Well, Jay, it would have been great just to get any job in the major leagues. You know, I'd done um, I'd done a year in, in Durham and I'd done two years in Pawtucket and I was hoping to, to get a big league job um, that winter. And I was very fortunate that I was actually offered three different jobs, the Expos, the Padres and the Mets. And the Mets job offer came last. So I was really hanging on tenterhooks and wondering whether you know, my opportunity might come somewhere else, but obviously, you know, I, I spent 500 nights sitting on the upper deck at Shea Stadium and, and thousands of nights listening to you know, Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kiner broadcast the game as the Mets were a huge, huge part of my life. And, and to to be able to sit next to Bob Murphy for 15 years and um, there were very few days that I didn't have to pinch myself. Uh, just in recognition of of where I was and what I was doing, it, it it almost seemed surreal at times. And even to this day, sometimes I have to step back and think, this is just remarkable that I've had a chance to do this. So we see one step further, Murph retires um, in 2003. You take over, you know, team with Harry Rose. How did it feel to take his place? You know, the guy had been an original med, an icon in New York with Lindsay and Bob and, in 2004, you step into his chair. Well, you know, I mean, I learned a lot from Murph. Murph was the master of the big moment. Um, when a game came down to its crisis points, he painted the word picture and gave you the sense of the moment and the emotion of it better than anybody that I, I can possibly imagine. And I, I really learned a lot from that. So, you know, when I had a chance to... to slide over and, and fill his shoes. That was great. But, you know, the other piece about that was the opportunity to work with Howie because uh, the two years that we spent together were just so much fun. We, we both came from a similar place, kids from Queens who grew up as, as huge Mets fans and um, really had absorbed most of the team's history. And, you know, I, I refer to Howie as my, my brother from another mother. We, you know, we just meshed so well because we had so many shared sensibilities and those two years were just they were so much fun did you have did you have to think twice uh gary when the offer of messing why came up in, in in 2005 to, to you know to change over to tv i mean was it much of a uh, a choice for you or the opportunity was just too great you know i thought more than twice i i always jay considered myself a radio guy I mean, I grew up on radio. I grew up on description and, and painting the picture. And, and you know, those 15 years that, that I worked with Murph and the, the two more that I worked with Howie only enhanced that. I never had any aspirations of going to television. You know, I'd done a few games filling in here and there. But, you know, I've always considered myself a radio guy. And even all these years later, 
um, I still see myself as a radio guy doing TV. So, yeah, I had to think really hard about it. But, you know, the, the bottom line, and you know, not everybody wants to say this, but you know, TV pays better than radio. I had five kids who were all heading for college. And, um, it was as much a financial consideration as anything. And, you know, it's been a great marriage with with SNY. And, and I've had a, a wonderful time and, and a very different environment than than working on the radio. But it definitely was a, a it was it was something that I really had to get over mentally that um, that this was going to be something different that I, I was going to be pursuing because I had always had it in my mind to be on radio forever. Did, did you have to change much of your of your routine, Gary, when you made the switch? Or I mean, you know, I mean, did you have to change your how you approach the games? Was that a big ch challenge for you? Well, here's here's the bottom line. A, you have to dress better. <laughs> B, 90% of what goes through my brain, I have to eliminate and find the 10% that works on television because you just don't, you know, you don't talk as much. And probably the biggest thing is, you know, and this isn't true for, for every team's radio, but Mets radio has always been two broadcasters. It really hasn't been other than Ralph Kiner at the beginning, it really wasn't a player in the booth. It was always, you know, two broadcasters, whether it was Bob Murphy and Gary Thorne or, or Murph and myself or me and Howie. Or, uh, it, it, that, that's just the way Mets radio had always worked. So when you do radio with another broadcaster, you're really doing your own color. You're not leaning on an ex-player or an ex-manager to to analyze the game for you. So I think that was the biggest transition is knowing what not to say and leaving it to Keith and Ron to be the, the analysts. Um, so it's, it's really about working well with others and, and being part of a team. And um, I, I think that ends up being the, the biggest part of the transition. So, so 2006, you guys get together. I mean, you know, Ronnie comes from the nationals. Keith had been around here and you come from radio. Did you think it would, when did you think it would actually gel the way it has gelled right from the beginning? Or, I mean, did you think you would be as big of a hit as you guys have been? Well, I think, Jay, we all benefited from the fact that none of us really had any idea what we were doing. You know, I mean, I was coming from radio and really didn't know anything about TV. Um, you know, Ronnie had done that one year in Washington, but he really had, I mean, he got the job like the day before the season started and didn't have a lot of direction. So he was kind of winging it and he was very raw. And, you know, Keith had dabbled here and there. He'd done 40, 50 games a year, but he really hadn't taken it on as a, a full time challenge. So um, I, I think that it, it really helped us that we all knew that we needed to lean on each other. Um, I had my skills as a play by play guy and a guy who had a great sense of, of Mets history and. You know, Ronnie had his pitching expertise and Keith had his hitting expertise and his overall knowledge of the game. We all had our own personalities. And I think that, you know, a lot of three man booths don't thrive because egos get in the way and, and guys are competing to be the star and, and, and hog the microphone. And we've never had that problem. I, I think we're all happy to defer to the other guy's area of expertise and and I think that's part of why it's worked so well is because um, we're all willing to step back and let the other guys shine. And um, 
you know, we're very, very lucky that it's worked out the way it has. And, and you know, they, they, Ronnie and Keith have both referred to you as the quarterback of the booth. Do you re- consider yourself the QB and uh, you know, pass it off to one to the other? You know, I don't really see it that way. I see it more as a natural conversation. And you have to understand also the way television functions. We have the greatest producer of our games that you can possibly have. Greg Picker has been with us from day one, and he knows the game. He knows television. He's an incredibly creative guy, and um, he's in our ears during the game. And he's, as much as I am, the one who is pushing Ronnie and Keith's button, not to tell them what to say, but just to push them to go to the next level. Um, so much of what you hear in, in, in television broadcasting of games is trite and banal and not particularly interesting. And, you know, we've always taken the approach that we're looking to entertain people, we're looking to educate people, we're looking to go in different places that, that other broadcasts don't go. And, and Greg has been instrumental in that. And, and I think it's a matter of all of us carrying on a, a, a conversation like we would if we weren't on the air and having somebody in our ear pushing us to do better every day. And I think that's, that's a lot of why it works. I, I, don't, I don't think it's so much anybody taking the lead as um, the three of us in the booth and Greg in the truck all working together to, to make it mesh. Gary, you've been uh, in your career. I've had a lot of great calls. I just want to touch on a couple of them. And the first one that comes to mind was uh, the rainy day against the Braves in the playoffs in 99 when Ventura hits the uh, Grand Slam single. Do you remember what your thoughts on when that, when that play was taking place? Well, that was the single greatest game I think I've ever seen, Jay. I mean, that, you know, if you remember the series, the Mets lost the first three games and it looked like they were going to get knocked out. And then, um, you know, they squeaked out a win in game four and when Olerud, you know, hit a 17 hopper up the middle um, to drive in a couple of runs. And then that that Sunday with with four o'clock start and rain falling for 15 innings, the managerial moves, Bobby Valentine was was at his absolute shining best that day, outmaneuvering Bobby Cox all day. Um, you know, Sean Dunstan had that unbelievable at bat to start the bottom of the 15th when the Mets were down by a run. I think it was 12 pitches. They got a base hit and yeah, the inning progressed from there. And, you know, once Robin came to the plate with the bases loaded and less than two out, you had a feeling that he was going to find a way to win the game. Um, and the fact that the ball cleared the wall and the fact that Todd Pratt mob, you know, jumped on him before he could get to second base, all of that just added to the, um, to the uniqueness of it. But even without any of that, that game was one of the most spectacular events I have ever been a part of. And, and that will always, uh, always stick with me. How about in 2000, Ben Benny's home run, uh, against the giants in the 13th inning in the, uh, in the, in the divisional playoffs. Yeah, that, that whole series was great, right? Because they lost game one in San Francisco. Um, they, they won an extra innings in game two after, uh, after JT Snow tied it in the ninth. And you know, Johnny Franco strikes out Barry Bonds to end the game. And so they come back to Shea and you know, they're in one of these low-scoring battles. You know, and Benny was such a, such a crowd favorite. Everybody loved Benny Agbayani, and it was great to see him 
have that moment. You know, he had he had begun this season that year by uh, in the second game of the season in Japan, hitting a grand slam right, to right. to win the game. This was this was this was like the bookend of that uh, that thirteenth inning home run off Aaron Fultz, and you know that that propelled the team because you know the next day Bobby Jones goes out and, and throws a one hitter, and then they they clinch the series. It was um, it was uh, yeah, it was a fantastic moment, and and I. I was so happy for Benny because he was such a terrific dude. Yeah, he's he's one of the fed. people love Benny. He came back during the summer for a visit, and they still remember him. Just a lovable guy, and remember the game when he threw the ball into the stands and took it back, and, <laughs> yeah. he, and then replaced it after the game. I think I think thank God we we won that game. And Gary, in in '06, you you know even though yesterday while you did radio for a little bit, and you know when Andy made the the, the catch against the uh, the Cardinals. Did you think it's any way possible we weren't going to the World Series that year? It certainly seemed that way, right? I mean, that seemed like the magical moment. You know, tie game, sixth inning. Um, it seemed for all the world as though Scott Rowland had a two-run homer. And, and um, Andy, I, I've never seen a guy extend his arm after being in full flight that far above the wall and to catch it in the webbing the way he did with the glove tilted back and and, and snap it back in. And then in the bottom of the inning, you, you know, and it's still high game, Mets load the bases. And um, I still remember the, the curveball that Jeff Supon threw to, uh, to Jose Valentin to strike him out. It's probably the best curveball he's ever thrown. And then Andy has a chance with the bases loaded and two out, and, and he flies out. And, you know, a little air came out of the balloon then, and obviously so much transpired later in the ninth inning. Yes. But it definitely seemed after Andy made the catch as though all the momentum was in the Mets' favor, and it just it just didn't happen that way. And then we go to O twelve, and the, the first and only no hitter in Mets history with Miss Santana it was after fifty one years at the time. Did you think that was going to after all the years? Do you think we were finally going to get one of the Seavers and the Goodens and Kuzmans, and uh, finally the Mets get a no hitter? Well, I mean. I was firmly convinced that the Mets would never have a no hitter. I mean, to have as many great pitchers as the Mets had had, and you know, a lot of them threw no hitters either before they became Mets or after they were Mets. But it just seemed as though it was it was this great juxtaposition of having this tradition of some of the best pitching in baseball, and yet not having this singular event happen over half a century. So until the last pitch until David Freeze swung and missed, I was convinced it was not going to happen. Because if you remember the circumstances that night, it didn't even seem plausible that Santana was going to get to the ninth inning. I mean, his pitch count was high. I think he walked four batters in the first five innings. Um, and you know, Terry was, Terry Collins was, I mean, he was in anguish for most of the last three or four innings of that game because he knew exactly what the circumstances were. Here was a guy who was coming back from from injury, they had limited him uh, greatly in terms of his pitch count. And here, inning after inning, pitch after pitch, you know Terry is is in agony watching Santana continue on. And even the last batter, you know, he falls behind, freeze three and zero. Oh. Well, what happens if he walks him there? And now yeah. he's pushing toward one hundred and forty pitches. But um, he, he did it, man, and it was um, it was great. And I, you know, it it could have been anybody, right? I mean. No hitters are fluky things. I and mean, we saw that when uh, Chris Heston pitched a no hitter against yeah. the Mets a few years ago. Um, but I'm glad that when when 
somebody finally did it after all those years and great pitchers. I'm glad it was somebody of the caliber of Johan Santana who was one of the best pitchers of his generation, that he was the guy to do it. Gary, two more I wanted to touch on really the whole weekend. As as a a show, Edson White did it a number of times. You know, five days in Flushing in July of, uh, of 2015, what were you thinking when Wilmer hit the home run after all he went through uh, to get the game winning hit that Friday night against the Nationals? Well, there were so many pieces to that, right? It was you know the, the night that he thought he was traded, and you know we're watching on Twitter as as every you know reputable baseball writer in the country is writing that the trade is done, and yet Wilmer's still on the field because Terry doesn't know that you know all of this is out there but you know because of the nature of social media now um all the fans watching the game in the stands had their you know their ways of of uh, checking out twitter or whatever and um so they all knew but the only people who didn't know were the people in the dugout and then somehow you know wilmer gets wind of it and um you know we're showing him with tears in his eyes on the field and i think that in a way that that I can't ever remember it happening before, that humanized Wilmer in a way that that other players just never have been. And I I think the you know the whole notion of a player loving his franchise and being a part of his team so much that he would be in tears on the field at the prospect of having to leave the only organization he'd ever known. I think you know fans live their entire lives bonded with a franchise. Players often don't. And I think for fans to see a player care as much as they do about being a part of that franchise really cemented Wilmer in a way that that few players ever have. And so, you know, they had that horrible loss on that Thursday against the Padres, um, you know, rain in the ninth inning and Justin Upton's home run against Familia. And then... Before the game on Friday at four o'clock, we find out that Cespedes is coming and he'll arrive the next day. And then Wilmer goes out that night. He had a couple of chances actually to be the hero, but then he hits the home run in the 12th inning. And it was just, it was perfect. I mean, every time he came to the plate, every time he handled a ground ball, he got a standing ovation and then finally caps it off with the game winner. It was, it was really poetic. Okay, one thing I wanted to ask you the last game of the year when we clinched against Cincinnati, you tied. That clincher to the Wilmer game is that you know tears of tears of joy for the 2015 Mets. Did that just come to you, or was something you were thinking about, or how did you manage to tie those two things together, or was it not predictable? Yeah, you can't you can't really um, script those things, but you you have in mind the totality of what a team accomplishes. Because I mean, think about that season. Really, for the first four months. The Mets were a middling team that really wasn't going anywhere, but nobody else in the division was doing particularly well either, which is why they were close enough at the end of July that Sandy Alderson felt as though, you know, he could make the moves um, to to try and solidify the team. And so, you know, he gets Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson, and then he makes the trade for Gomez that doesn't go through, and they get Cespedes, and Cespedes has this unbelievable stretch to help carry the team. And they get Tyler Clippert and Addison Reed and they get Wright and Darno back from injury. And all of a sudden, it's an entirely different team and they just blitz their way through September. 
um, you know, that series in Washington in early September was just a thing of beauty. They swept all three games. They came from behind in all three. They came from six runs down the game that, that, that Matt Harvey started and, and Kirk Neuenheis hit the big home run. I mean, there were so many things that had happened to that team emotionally on, on, on a roller coaster that I think that that was what kind of came to mind in that moment more than anything else, that, that here's a team that, that really had, had hit the depths, had remade itself and, and found new life. And um, it went really from tears to joy. And, and yeah, it was a great week. That, that's, I think. Well, okay, I want to say um, my, probably my favorite for the layoffs is probably the one you're probably most anonymous with. Uh, in March of 2016, the impossible has happened. Bart Cologne hits a home run. It was the greatest thing to ever happen in baseball history, sub to that effect. I mean, how was that to announce that game? Well, you know, we, you know, we were talking about about the clincher a moment ago, and you know, when when there's a something that's about to happen, whether it's you know a clincher or a player approaching a record, or you know, you're in the late innings of a close game, and you know that something is going to happen that's going to decide the game. You're kind of, you know, you're, again, you're not scripting a call, but you're ready for it to happen. But this was about as unexpected a thing as I had ever seen. The only thing I can compare it to in, in all the games I've called was, if you remember, in I think it was 2010, when Jeff Francora lined into the unassisted triple play to end right, the game. Right, right, right. That was as unexpected thing as you could possibly have happen, right? You can't possibly prepare for something like that. And that's what this was. You know, it's two out and nobody on. And I think Plawecki hit a double. And you're thinking, okay, they cleared the pitcher spot and they'll have the, the leadoff guy lead off the next inning. And, you know, Bartolo was such a singular figure. I mean, people loved him. Um, and it wasn't just it wasn't just the fact that he was a different shape than most players. And it wasn't just the fact that he was 42 years old. Um, he was so unflappable. And, and uh, the behind-the-back behind play that he made in Miami. I mean, there were so many things that he did that just drew people's attention. And nothing more than his at-bats, uh, because he was so futile when he first came to the Mets, and then he got a little bit better, but still every at-bat was so entertaining. But the last thing in the world you're thinking is that this guy can hit a home run. So when it happened, I mean, the shock value of it was just off the charts. And I think you can, you can hear it in that call and Ronnie chuckling in the background, because, you know, neither one of us could, could believe that this, this could actually happen, and here we were witnessing it. And, and the fact that that you had so many Med fans at the game that day, I think enhanced it. It wasn't like you had um, a stadium where there was no sound on the road, which happens oftentimes when, when something happens in a road game. You had so many Med right. fans there. It, it really it changed the dynamic of the whole thing. Yeah, it was a great day. Mr. Cohn, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to the day where I can see you soon and you know, be safe and take care of your family, and I hope to see you not too distant future. Jay, thanks so much for having me. Um, these podcasts are, are great, and uh, you're doing a great job with them. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 